The Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Kino Lorber, presenting Beanpole from director Kantemir Balagov. Winner of the Best Director Prize at Cannes Un Certain Regard, an official selection of the 57th New York Film Festival, Beanpole is now playing in select cities. Critics are calling Angela Shonalek's I Was at Home But exquisitely cryptic and gorgeously immersive. I Was at Home But opens February 14th at Film at Lincoln Center with Shonalek in person for Q&As on Friday and Saturday. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nicholas Rapold, and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment. As you may have noticed, Film Comment went to the Sundance Film Festival in Park City, Utah. We recorded a series of podcasts, and now at last, we have our thrilling conclusion. For our final episode, I was joined by Manola Dargis of The New York Times, Amy Taubin, contributing editor to Film Comment, and Devika Girish, our assistant editor. We talked about a lot of movies, including Eliza Hittman's Never Rarely, Sometimes, Always, Lee Isaac Chung's Minari, Ben Zeitlin's long-awaited Wendy, and the documentary On the Record about accusations against hip-hop mogul Russell Simmons. Plus, Miranda July's Kajillionaire, Michael Omareda's Tesla, and more. And for even more about Sundance, be sure to listen to our previous podcasts and check our website for features. Let's go now to our conversation. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. Uh, my name is Nick Rapold. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment. And this is another in our Sundance Film Festival podcasts coming to you from Park City uh, in various states of exhaustion, and, um, but I won't go into that. Um, we're here to talk about movies rather than whine about anything else. Um, and for this special edition, um, I'm very pleased to be joined by... Amy Taubin. Manola Dargis. And... Devika Girish, sous chef. Sous chef? Yeah, because we did a nautical metaphor, aeronautical, now culinary. Okay, <laughs> well then you're going to have to make pastries uh, later. <laughs> um, okay, well, and uh, obviously we're pretty far into the festival now, um, but I've been asking um, everyone who's come on the podcast just what their general feelings are for this edition and uh, what what's notable at, or at all distinct um, about this go-round um, Manola, any thoughts? Notable or distinct? Um, well, you've already all talked about Time, which is probably my favorite movie that I've seen here thus far. Um, but two, uh, a couple other movies that I liked a lot, and I may be going out of the order that Nick wants me to go because I've completely forgotten. Um, but I like a movie called uh, Never Rarely, Sometimes, Always by uh, Eliza Hittman. I've actually never seen any of her previous uh, movies, which uh, one of which is um, uh, Beach Rats. Um, but this is a very small and intimate movie about two girls that I like the tone. It's very low key. Um, it, again, it has this great intimacy. Um, and there's not... Uh, too much talking, which is really one of my biggest pet peeves about American independent cinemas. Everyone's always explaining everything. Um, one of the girls has uh, gotten pregnant, and she doesn't know what to do. And another uh, girl, they're both teenagers, around 15 years old, um, helps that she works with, uh, helps her out, and they travel to New York City so the girl can get an abortion. And it's just, you know, I was just trying to remember the last American movie that really directly head-on dealt with the fact that someone needed an abortion, was okay with having an abortion, uh, and was going to go get an abortion, you know, and that it wasn't, you know, there wasn't the great anguish, and, you know, it, and it's not to, you know, in any way to um, kind of not, not give uh, the fact that for some women it is a very difficult choice, but this is a movie that also kind of reminds us that it is also a matter-of-fact choice that women make, and it is their... Is still their constitutional right, which was a very emotional thing to watch, given uh, the assaults on, on this constitutional right. So I really liked it, and I again, I really, I'm not going to say it was quite European, but I, it really, it, it's a good thing to me that it didn't feel like an American independent film as much as it might have. I know it's a terrible thing to say, but it just, again, the over-explaining yeah. uh, is just such a thing that happens here. Yeah. Yeah, I think. Uh, you know, the film does continue the minimalism of her previous films. It's very similar stylistically, uh -huh. especially to Beach Rats. Uh -huh. um, and I, I thought it was interesting that she maintained that same tone, mood, 
her angles and shots are very similar. She's working again with Helen Louvart, mm-hmm. and they're uh, filming in 16 millimeter. This That's like her cinematographer. Lovely, yes. Okay. Uh, who also shot Happy as Lazaro. Oh, nice. Yeah, and and beach rats, and so okay. there's um, it's just a, so luscious and sensuous, uh, mm-hmm. and I think it really brings out her emphasis on the body, even mm-hmm. in beach rats, and it felt like love. It's really about coming of age as a tactile mm-hmm. experience. Mm-hmm. But it was interesting that she maintains those um, affectations in this film, mm-hmm. but also takes it in sort of a wider direction. Okay. Um, it's not this kind of self-contained coming of age like in her previous films. Mm-hmm. It really, uh, it like goes out into this wider conversation. And there's that moment in the film where they arrive at Port Authority and they like look at New York City. And it, almost there was this, I felt like it was the film also stepping out into a sort of larger politics than right uh, than you know she's she's done before, and what you were just saying this like matter of fact depiction of choice. So I've been thinking about the film. You know, last time we talked about it, I'd just seen it, and thinking more about it, it's it's really interesting that the actual choice is not you know labored or made difficult in any way. There's no saying. moment where she is. Thinking about whether she should do this, whether it's ethical. Yeah, there's no like bathroom stall scene where she's weeping and, you know, thinking about the baby she won't have. You exactly. Know? And yeah. I just feel like that is actually in 2020 felt like a radical moment. I, it, I haven't seen the film, but there hasn't been that in an American movie since Fast Times, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. One of the great movies <laughs> and one of the great movies about women making a choice. And I think one of the other things that I like, um, because uh, I do like difficult women in life and on screen, is that our heroine, the the girl who is uh, going, who needs to get an abortion, is really kind of just not. She's not particularly happy, friendly, funny. There's none of that. There is no she's not att- likable. She's not quote unquote likable. Quote unquote, unquote. You know, she's. You know, another horrible word, relatable. But I mean, she is relatable in the sense that she's just a a human being. She is so tick free, you know, in terms of like little cutesy, you know, little things that are. I really felt like the director was not trying to make me like her character. And I thought that was another thing. And maybe when I said European, it was just the sense of like that you don't need to seduce the audience with a like of what that we're all like going to like stand up and cheer and pump our fists in the air at the end. None of that. Right. It is a life. Because she's not even yeah. like artificially spunky. That's all. also, you know, yeah. it's, no it's not like, oh, she's what like fiercely independent. <laughs> yeah, she's just like a person. And reacting as I think most normal people yeah, would react to this. she's crabby. She's really annoyed. Right? This is like, you know, they're running out of money. They're in freaking Port Authority, like the, the, the you know, the asshole of New York. I mean, it's just, sorry, <laughs> you can clip it. It's just, you know, it's, they're yeah. just, I really, really enjoyed it. And it is a journey and it does open up in the set, quote unquote journey again. And I'm very using that, you know, it was self-consciously in the fact that they're leaving their homes, but that is very much about, their odyssey is very small and very human. Let's put yeah. it that way. Yeah. And, and, and what's so interesting is that all the obstacles that she encounters, again, don't have to do with these like ethical or moral or any of those considerations, but they just have to do with logistical things. I think that's... I'm not ready to have a child. I don't want to have a child. I would like to have an abortion. Thank you very much. I mean, I just feel like it's very, really freaking matter of fact. Right. And it's more about, okay, how do we get on the train? How do we find money to stay? Yeah. Yeah. And that gives a different sort of side to the whole conversation around reproductive justice, things that maybe we're not always thinking about when we're just thinking of the legal. Well, we're not seeing it in movies, certainly, because the, the, the kind of insistence on it not being an anguished, moral, ethical choice is in itself, I think, a radical moment, you know, yeah. again, in 2020. Yeah. And and she has a friend, she has a cousin who kind of selflessly helps her throughout the whole journey and is also not there to like later on, maybe you shouldn't be doing this. Or is no, this no, no. Right it's thing? just, you know, just this like, is not, let's go. <laughs> they're just like, OK, this is something we got to do. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so that's uh, never rarely, sometimes always. And um, I think Manola, you were mentioning that another... Yes, I actually like movies, a few. Um, uh, There's a movie uh, called Minori by Lee Isaac Chung. Uh, And uh, this is a movie that actually I don't think we've ever seen, ever. 
Um, you know, someone will... else just said that, and it's so in nice America? to hear that. Yeah, yeah, it just doesn't. It doesn't exist. Uh, it's set, I believe, in the it's in the mid '80s, and it's about a Korean American family. The mother and father are somewhere in their mid '30s, and they came to the United States from South Korea about ten years earlier, and they are poor. You know, that's a that's always a kind of like oh. They're poor. They're not like middle class. They're they're poor. Mm-hmm. They're not on opioids. <laughs> you know, no. They're not addicted to oxy. Uh, hello, um, and they have moved from California, where they've been working in like a truly truly terrible job uh, in a chicken hatchery, where basically they you separate out uh, uh, female and male chicks and you throw away the male chicks. It's it's a ghastly job. They didn't they did in California and they want to make a better life for themselves. They buy some land. And it's just very, um, you know, he afterwards he said that he was influenced by Koreeda. And I said, yeah, that totally makes sense. Uh, I'm not going to say it's in he's at that level, but there is something it's very small scaled. Mm-hmm. I think there's only one scene where it kind of edges into cuteness. Um, it's very matter of fact. Um, it's not poverty porn, to borrow mm-hmm. a term from another movie that I like very much. Um, and it's about Asian Americans living in the in the middle of the country, which you know, um, I was sitting with a friend whose family came over when she was six months old, you know, and they moved family to Ohio, and it's like, and I said, have you ever seen this? She said, no. Um, but it, you know, it's just very moving, and it's very, I think, very delicately done. You know, just kind of small. Things and again, it doesn't get. It deals with racism in a very matter-of-fact, not belabored way, but in a very, because you get the sense that the racism for that they encounter um, from white Americans is just every day. You know, there's just so you get the the way that it's handled in the movie. I think is to underscore that it's so quotidian. You know, and so it's not. You know, it's like, oh yeah, that's just something that happens. You know, but the it's really on what how they are trying to kind of keep it together. I, I really liked it a lot. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I I, I don't even know if I should say anything because I was able to see the beginning of it. But, okay, but it almost seemed like, and it looks really good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it definitely does. Sometimes the people around them seem stranger than they are. Absolutely, I would say that the uh, weird white uh, people that they meet in Arkansas are definitely. Um, amusingly uh the weirdos and the strangers and yeah. you're like oh we you know because you know people are weird you know yeah. but it's just like we're inside their reality their head and it's just it's very lovely yeah um and I'm, I'm gonna say a previous film he did just because i'm overly proud that i can pronounce it but he also directed lee, lee isaac chung directed munyu rangabo wow that was very impressive <laughs> um okay <laughs> uh another movie that um I guess in its own way hasn't been done before just because it's trying to be uh, an expose um, and which is kind of characteristic of the filmmakers um, Kirby Dick and Amy Ziering. Um, and the name of the movie is on the record switching over to a documentary now. Okay. Um, and I guess it was untitled for a while, but I think Amy, you both, we should give a little background. Yeah. Amy, you yeah. Give the background on it about Oprah Winfrey yeah. and Apple. Okay. Okay. I only know what I read or rather skimmed in the New York times. Yeah. So you all can just go online and read about it in depth. Okay. But, yeah. um, it had had the backing of Oprah Winfrey's company, uh, uh in connection with Apple TV and they pulled, they both pulled out leaving the movie without distribution just before it was set to premiere here. Um, and it's very confusing what the objection to the movie was. Having seen the movie, having read the objections, I did not find it unduly critical of rap, uh, you know, in terms of the culture, the music. And, and just to add to that, it's a really terrible thing when these women, and in particular the central character, but there are others, and they're women who are accomplished in the music industry, but they aren't at Oprah Winfrey's level. And when she doesn't stand for them, that's that's just the worst thing. Yeah. It was pretty, I saw, I was at the premiere, and it was pretty, it was a really emotional premiere. I mean, the audience was ridiculous, putting that aside. But um, as audiences here often are, um, everyone, the, guy, the movie got a standing ovation before, like, it would even played. I just can't stand that. Anyway, um, it's not the first time here. 
But, you know, they all were just basically cut loose by the most powerful, you know, one of the most powerful, you know, black women in, in America. And that's pretty intense, I, I think. Um, and this is a movie, despite my qualms, I think, Amy, you have some also very I serious qualms, serious qualms yeah. uh, you know, does give, you know, turn, you know, have a lot of women, black women, talking about their lives and their experiences and voicing profound cultural objections and criticisms. And, you know, it has people like Joan Morgan. I mean, these are like heavy hitters. And I feel like taken together, the women are what I really love in this movie. Absolutely. Well, so that's on the record. And that was that was us on the record about on the record. And it <laughs> it's a movie that I guess uh, it's it's uh, the news about it and the uh, preceded it a little. And I think you could say the same about some other movies here at Sundance, because as with every year, you have established filmmakers that are coming back that maybe after a long period of absence. Um, one of them is Ben Zeitlin, um, who's coming back after a Seven years. Seven years, I believe, yeah. Seven. After Beasts of the Southern Wild. Um, After Beasts of the Southern Wild um, with uh, Wendy, uh, which is, I guess, a retelling or reworking of the Peter Pan story um, that's been many years in the making, um, and many people have been curious about it. Uh, I guess it's been sort of under wraps for a while. Um, Who wants to start? I will say, when we did the preview, I was very skeptical of this film. And Amy sold me on it because she said that it was uh, like part of this series of films about the women left behind. Yes, so does that tur- hold up? Amy? No, it doesn't turn out to be about <laughs> the Wendy goes with the, to see Peter with her brothers and the, and she stays for as long as all all of them stay. No, it's really about Wendy's adventures in. Neverland or wherever the fuck that is. Whatever the Neverland. The Neverland. The Neverland that this is imagined. You know, we all loved Beast of the Southern Wild. Um, And for the first 10 minutes, 15 minutes of this movie, I thought it was going to be a great movie. I mean, it has an extraordinary opening. Absolutely. House on Fire. It's amazing. Really really great beginning. And it has a great ending because... The beginning is simply reprise. Right. <laughs> but yes. in between, I have no idea what possibly was going on. And yeah. Yeah. Ugh. It kind of falls off a cliff. Which it just is kind stops. Of, yeah. 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 It just stops and people. And just stays stuck for a really What is long the. Time. I haven't seen it. So, what is the reworking that it's doing? I don't know. It, it, okay. <laughs> you know, as I remember Peter Pan, there's a kind of clear narrative because there's a conflict between Peter and the Lost Boys and Captain Hook and the Pirates. Right. And that exists here in kind of vague way, but mostly it's a conflict between Peter, who is this amazing, uh, um, amazing, amazing, amazing child. Uh, I don't know where he's from. He's black, uh, but I have no idea where he's from. I thought maybe the Caribbean or Haiti was a kind of a sense of uh, his his accent. Beautiful. All the children are really beautiful. Presence and very strong. But he has nothing to do yeah. except say, I refuse to grow up. Yes. And anyone who says you have to or anyone who has shows signs, he comes at them with some kind of weapon. Yeah. And, but nothing happens because, of course, he's not going to do anything. And they've shot on many islands. And there are a lot of there's a lot of CGI and they kind of go into places that it seems like it's dangerous and they swim or fly underwater. There's a lot of underwater yep. cinematography. But yep. I kept worrying about the kids drowning. Yeah. <laughs> to be honest. But nothing is going on. I mean, well, at some point it seems there is this one big creature that they call the mother that is this day glow, you know, phosphorescent creature from that's from the deep. 
And at some point, the movie seems to try to be almost gesturing in the direction of an environmental movie. Mm. And I thought, this is the Greta story, you know, the Greta, you know, the, this right. is, um, that the children, you know, the adults have failed, and now we're with the children, and don't kill our mother. And right. but it just did not cohere for me at all, and yeah. it got uh, um, kind of tiresome to watch. Despite the beauty, the children are lovely, you know, and children are often very pleasurable to watch on screen. There's something just about watching children be children on screen that is very, you know, kind of incredibly beautiful. Um, yeah. Uh, but it just doesn't add up to much. And it made me feel very it made me feel sad at the end. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And continuing what you said at a certain point before they return, because they do go back. And Peter is very upset that they go back. And Wendy tells him that we are going to go back and we are going to grow up and our lives are going to be wonderful and there will be miracles and there will be uh, tragedies, but we will do great things, which is the greater part of it. Right. That's true. Yeah. That's yeah. You know, this is a kind of call to action of young people. So I was like, uh, next stop, the UN. Right. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea who this film is for. Yeah. I mean, I don't think people will take their kids to it. <laughs> and I don't know that, well, maybe kids would be interested, but... Well, mm. Except for the amputation that goes on. I'm not sure that, you know... Yeah, that, but it's a very discreet Discreet amputation. amputation. Yeah. Uh, this is also the first movie I, I think probably all of us who have seen the movie... That we saw, it was the first movie that is a searchlight movie, not a Fox searchlight. And you had the the classic Fox uh, logo that came on, you know. Um, but the fox was gone, eaten up by the mouse, devoured, yeah. amputated, whole, amputated. Yeah. So that was kind of bad. Gone to Neverland. I yelled out, <laughs> "Fox searchlight!" But that didn't. That there was no there was no great you know mutiny among the children in the audience. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the same thing happened with Downhill, also also a searchlight film. Um, yeah, Wendy also not a big fan. Just there's just this deadly like 30, 40 minute stretch of kids just running around on the island, ch- ch- shouting about. Don't it's go like old. some children's party at in Brooklyn that you have to attend on a Saturday, and you're like, no. <laughs> so if you like that, this might be the movie for you. Um, but ah, yeah, I don't know. I yeah, it's. I I guess there's even a, a, the tragic dimension to it in a way, which is that as he was making this movie, he was getting older and older, and it was taking longer and longer. Like it took him like you know. It took seven years. Seven years, and I. Oh. Felix, so go ahead. Oh yeah, and at the Q and A at the screening, I, he was there, and his sister worked on the movie, and he said they, from the time they were small children, they wanted to make a movie of Peter Pan, and so he thought having a certain amount of clout after Beasts of the Southern Wild that he could make what he wanted, it was finally the time to do it, and it took him seven years. Yeah, but uh, where the heck is? Uh I'm trying to make all my language PG-13 here for your podcast. Um, where is Tinkerbell? That was really... Was Tinkerbell the mother because it's the phosphorescent? That was the only thing I could think about. Because oh. Tinkerbell in the movie, and certainly is, is, you know, is this little, like, little ray of light that's dancing around. The, and the mother is the only is the only phosphorescent thing. But I just... Right. I can't really deep... I can't go any deeper on this movie. I don't really think. I, I've got to end. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's fine, yeah. Unless it's the uh, kind of Studio Ghibli fish thing but I, I don't know maybe there's a disney connection no. it could be i don't know um so well that is or was wendy uh, which is actually coming to theaters uh, next month um but an, another film by an you know a filmmaker we haven't heard much from a wa- for a while at least in terms of feature filmmaking uh, miranda july um with kajillionaire which is i also a good description of some of the acquisitions here <laughs> hey. okay Kajillionaire is the story of a very strange nuclear family um, of, um, I guess, sort of emotionally stunted. Um, I, you know, the descriptions call them grifters, but in a way, I think they're 
I mean, another way to describe it is that they're just trying to make money every which way they can, which sometimes is through a con, but sometimes is something akin to like coupon clipping, basically. Um, and <laughs> I don't know. They're I more mean, con or they do more cons than coupon they, clipping. They do but, more cons but, than but coupon. They're just they're really kind of sad, very low end, yes. you know, and they call themselves skimmers. Yes. And they're harmless cons. I mean, yeah, they're, they're just really, sort of yeah. trying to get by. They're not. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, they're robbing they a bank. S- they're stealing mail. So it depends on how harmless. Like, depends on you as a freelancer or waiting for a check in the mail. How harmless is that, Davika? Come on. So, in any event. Yes. Uh, So, yeah, crimes um, affecting or not affecting people, um, depending on the POV. Um, And they live next to a factory, uh, adjacent to a factory. So one of the kind of Miranda July touches early on is that they there's this sudden cut to their their apartment which is really just like a semi Old office right cubicle cubicle yeah, office yeah, yeah. where like pink foam is just like the you know like the blob is just coming down the wall and just their daily ritual just as normal as as like waking up is that they have to bucket away you know all the, the foam at certain times of the day when it comes in which might be toxic or whatever um so just one of those like physical like semi um you know absurd things that that are sprinkled throughout the movie um and but the daughter who's played by evan rachel wood um with just these very long straight hair just like her mother who has long straight hair in, in the in the movie um she's obviously you know getting restless under the 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 routines of the family and and having to go all out on all these absurd cons and not really having any life of her own um and that all changes Miraculously. Miraculously. Uh, they basically get enough money. It's very convoluted. It's it's a kind of needlessly complicated uh, plot twist that gets them on a plane where they meet uh, Gina Rodriguez. Gina Rodriguez character. playing. I don't know. Basically, she's. I'm sorry. She's playing a hot Latina. And I just can't believe another woman would just put this stereotype in a movie. I just was like, are you freak? Are you kidding me? But yes, that's what she is. She's not a magical Negro. She's the hot Latina, which, you know, exists to do very much the same thing for the white family. You know, she kind of liberates them, sexualizes them, yes. sexualizes them. I mean, in a way that you keep thinking, I'm waiting for the really interesting critique, the critical right. turn here, where she waiting will for be. The quotes. Yeah, well, she will be actually kind of deconstructing this, or in some way, as opposed yeah. to just going for it. And you're like, yeah. she's going for it. <laughs> well, actually, now that you mention it, there is a moment where she says something about how she can't afford to get caught in these cons because she's Puerto Rican. Right. But it's just a throwaway comment. Yeah. Like, right. I hadn't thought about this until you just said it. But there is something, you know, the film acknowledges that these kinds of extra legal activities have a racialized dimension to them. But right. then it's just suddenly that context is just thrown away. Right. Because yeah. it all has to get funneled into the Miranda July machine, <laughs> basically. No, but I mean, there's yeah. some filmmakers, you know, it's just like, so everything and. You know, I wonder if people would have liked this movie more if she had appeared in it. I think that she, mm-hmm. whether you liked her or not, that I think her presence in the earlier films was actually very helpful to those movies yep. in terms of kind of, you know, she, her own performances. You know, I, every word that, that I comes to mind is just horrible, quirky, kooky. It's all those horrible words, you yeah. know, but she... She did it, and for some people that was very, very appealing. Not so much for some of us, for some of us, but um, but I think without her, I think that that's actually yeah. a problem. The Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Kino Lorber, presenting Beanpole from director Kantemir Balagov, winner of the Best Director Prize at Cannes in Certain Regard and an official selection of 57th New York Film Festival. Beanpole tells the story of two women who returned to a haunted Leningrad after serving together in World War II. A New York Times critic's pick, Manola Dargis calls it dazzling and a brilliantly told, deeply moving story about love. Beanpole is now playing at Film Forum in New York and coming soon to select cities. Angela Shonalek's masterful I Was at Home But opens February 14th exclusively at Film at Lincoln Center. Winner of the Silver Bear for Best Director, I Was at Home But is an exquisitely cryptic domestic drama that grapples with fundamental questions of existence. The release of I Was at Home But will be accompanied by the first complete retrospective of Shanalek's work in the U.S., which starts this weekend at Film at Lincoln Center. Shanalek will be in person for Q&As both this weekend and next. Don't miss your chance to encounter one of the new masters of international cinema. But I have to say, I did find a lot of the movie just kind of funny because I, I didn't even like try you to laughed. engage. 
I did. Well, I loved plenty. Yeah, because I mean, I couldn't really, I couldn't get into any of the, the supposed romance happening or, or really take that emotional side of it seriously. And since I just switched that off, I was just kind of able to laugh at it and laugh at Miranda July as like a sketch artist, basically, because mm. there's kind of a fine line. And that's part been part of her, someone on our, uh, we were talking about before, talking with before, um, referenced her visual art or like, you know, gallery art. Um, punchline art you know and, and sketch art yeah, and, there are some nice you know. moments i mean i like uh i like the the adult daughter played evan rachel wood's character she when they try to sneak by their landlord uh they crouch the mother and father crouch down but she instead bends over way backwards it's a really beautiful it's my favorite thing in the movie yeah is every time she does this amazing walk where <laughs> she just seems like she's about to kind of you know, do a backflip, but instead she's walking in this yeah. really strange way. It's qu- and it's quite beautiful. And that just as a is something that is visually funny and and, and very strong graphically. Like yeah. really, that's and she has those moments. So I'm not I am not in any way dismissing it. She's just not my cup of twee, as I like to say. <laughs> Best pun award. I know. Uh, I've, I've used it recently, but I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay recycling. Yes. I will say I laughed. Like I said, I laughed a lot during the movie, but what I liked most about the movie was there was a real sadness to it that did touch me. For instance, think about it. They're living in this abandoned office building with some toxic foam dripping down one wall, and they're still paying $500 in rent. And there's, I mean, some, there's a scene in which a character is like, you just pay $500? But to me, it's like they're paying $500 to live in like this... Clearly unusable place that no one else can, you know, and I thought there were certain details like that. I just, I think I found their predicament very moving and uh, especially her, you know, trapped within this sort of abusive family. But then the family's circumstances also having stunted them in, in very deep ways. And, and, and to me, it just seemed like a story about homelessness. I guess so, but you know, I'm, I live in Los Angeles, which is you know has uh, the highest uh, population of uh, homeless individuals in the country. I mean, I think it's at sixty thousand at this point. And you know, if you live um, in a lot of parts of the city, you're just like there are homeless people like encamped along all the freeways. I mean, it's incredibly dangerous. I've seen, I've had to call in as I've been driving on the freeway. There's someone on the freeway who's going to get killed. You know, I mean, so I felt. I, I guess I would have felt more emotionally involved if I felt that, because yes, they are poor, but their poverty, I don't know, if their poverty felt like just another quirk to me rather than something that was kind of like very deeply thought through in the movie. Like, I think that, I think like why they're called grifters and the, that's how it was presented. Like the grifters, you know, or right. skimmers as they say. Right. And I just <laughs> felt like, I don't know. I just felt uncomfortable with it. Um, and I wasn't moved. I mean, I, I, you know, again, I don't hate the movie. I just didn't like it. It just didn't work for me, but I was, you know, completely understand being moved by it. It's a got a family, you know, family dynamic of bad parents and, and who can't, who can't relate to bad parents, you know? <laughs> um, well, or, yeah. I mean, as the child. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, well, I guess we could talk about different directions, but what I want to hear one film that um, we talked about only briefly, but I know Amy is is interested uh, in and perhaps has an, um, a, a fondness for, which is Tesla. Tesla. Yeah. Um, I don't think this is, in terms of uh, narrative fiction films, a very good year for Sundance. There are a lot of really good docs, but yeah. Um, but for me, there is one film that's certainly as good as any film I've ever seen here. And you know, if we were doing our top twenty of the twenty-first century, it would be second on my list. <laughs> and that's Michael Almereda's Tesla, which I just was. I mean, Michael Almereda has made a number of very, very good films. He's also made some films that aren't so interesting. Um, but he, and he is brilliant, and he comes at things from uh, angles that no one else quite does. And this is, for him, uh, the story of Tesla. This was a long-time germinating project at least 15, 20 years. 
I think it's the most ravishingly beautiful film I've ever seen in my life. Very hard movie to describe. Um, most of it is set at the turn of the... Uh, set between the end of the 19th century and the very beginning, when Tesla and Edison and later, whatever his name is, at Westinghouse, all those yeah. people who are doing various things around electricity are in competition and sometimes uh, making deals together. But, you know, Tesla is the idealist, and Tesla's whole... He was a really crazy person. He was a total visionary. And I think I've never seen a movie about a visionary where I absolutely believe that this person was a visionary and a genius. And he's played by Ethan Hawke. And it's Ethan Hawke's greatest performance. But every person in this movie, and it's also very funny. And you can think a little bit Sam Shepard in how it's written. Uh, but because Michael was very close to Sam Shepard and made a Shepard biography, and there's a little bit of that, and there are all kinds of anachronistic things. So, and it isn't coy or fay, but the results of the things that Tesla was envisioned are suddenly in the movie. So you have this character who plays several people within. She's that wonderful, wonderful actress that was in. Uh, the Nick, E. Fusen. But there are lots of actors, and they're all on the same wavelength. And I must say that everything is so beautiful, especially if you like that moment of Art Nouveau, but in a chamber way, and all the music is very layered. So it's kind of like Mahler mixed with Chopin. It's I mean, it's the most evocative movie. Oh, but it what sounds beautiful. me was that you see movie, even Only Lovers Left Alive is composed of maybe 30 sequences. This is a movie that's composed of maybe 200 sequences. And every single one of them is very short and more beautiful than the other. And small, like a chamber piece, but the most lushly lit fabriced chamber piece you've ever seen. And I just thought any piece of this I would want to have on a loop seeing over and over and over again. And then there are the performances, and then there's the story. And the story of this guy who was really quite crazy and quite a visionary. And actually Michael gets to the whole issue because you know it's J.P. Morgan that's financing all these uh, uh, adventures in electricity. And J.P. Morgan finally tells Tesla that Tesla doesn't understand anything about money and the value of money. Right. And um, he, you know, he's a risk taker too, but at this point. And suddenly you realize it's totally about the movies and how Michael Amorator's never gotten a movie financed as big as this movie. And yeah. even this movie isn't as big as it should be. And it's all about what capital, how capital squashes genius. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, it's electricity. So it's the most beautiful lighting you've ever seen. And sometimes it's just washed with light. And sometimes it's just uh, um, lit parts of faces. And it changes constantly. I mean, I don't know how long they took to shoot it. But every scene is a different setup and a different lighting. And I was just ravished by it. Yeah. Well, that sounds amazing, and I want to see it right now. <laughs> yeah. No, I I, um, I won't say too much because I talked about it before. But, yeah, the, that it's about a filmmaking and, and, and being a filmmaker or even just being an artist generally. I, I really I – was, I was feeling that too. And, actually, I thought about that a bit as well when I was watching Nine Days – which in that case, I kind of, it took the wind out of the movie for me a little bit because in that case it was like, oh, it's, it, you know, it's, you're kind of using this artist figure to, to somehow take this movie to another level. But in Tesla, it was, it was yeah, the whole full, fully integrated 
deal um, there. And Ethan Hawke, one thing, I don't know, I, I really liked how he was using his voice in it. it, it like, yeah. he, was, he has this accent. Yeah, not only that, but it's, a, it's just like this growl that he kind of like sculpts that he carries yeah. through the movie that's really kind of cool. And then there are hilarious cartoon things. Like there's a scene where Tesla and, is it Tesla and Edison? I forget, or Tesla, and, yeah, uh, are having an argument. And they have a particular kind of ice cream cone oh, yeah. that you cannot get anymore. I That's don't know true. where Michael found Mellow Rolls. Anyone remember Mellow Rolls? No, I've never he heard of them. <laughs> and they're squashing them into each other's as they argue. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, places. Yeah. So it's got this kind of vortable side. Uh -huh. And there are scenes where people are on roller skates. And <laughs> Oh, yeah. interesting. <laughs> There's a whole scene on, on roller skates. Which is, when does it take place again? Is it? Well, basically 1895 to... Oh, it's the beginning of movies. I see. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. There's, yeah. yeah. Okay. There's a great line about movies, yeah. too, where yeah. Edison is... He mentions like the cinematograph or kinetoscope, and he says, yeah, everyone's going to like that. And then he moves on to something else. <laughs> <laughs> well, you I, you've totally... And my then appetite. there's a big Tesla machine. They go out to the desert, oh, and suddenly crackling. all these closely lit interiors just go absolutely panoramic, you know. And I don't think they were really out there. I mean, I think actually it's a match shot. And Tesla, and there are the then these big Tesla machines where it's kind of the Walter D. Maria lightning field. Wow. Well, filmmaker making a movie about light, that sounds yeah. kind of perfect. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're, we're probably uh, coming into our final leg here, or final stretch, or landing. I'll use all the metaphors. No, we need to talk about documentaries. We need to oh. talk about the social oh, dilemma yeah, and right. um, the other one, uh, a code bias. Coded, okay. Coded bias. bias. Social dilemma. You, um, both of you have seen, right? Yeah, I saw. Yeah. I saw it just today. Yeah, I like. I liked it. I. I. It, it's a documentary, but it has these for me uh, completely superfluous of kind of narrative sections where we see a quote unquote you know uh, typical family, and so as we're so it's divided into these two sections. One where we have a lot of people who invented all of this kind of technology who are now saying, "Oh, it's so horrible, and it's going to destroy the world." They're all billionaires now, but they're really sorry. Um, uh, and then uh, intercut with that are is this family, and you see this kind of quote unquote typical family, and how their relationships uh, with one another and their own relationships, their own psyche is being changed by their addiction to phones. And mm. it's a complete, it's a horror movie at its best in a way. You know, it completely freaks you out. You may not, you know, know it may not be teaching anything that you haven't heard before. But to have one after another of these foundational figures say, yeah, this is really bad. We need to do something. What do you see for the future? And one of them says civil war. And I'm just thinking, uh, okay. I mean, it's, you know, and it's completely I mean, persuasive. Basically, they show you both of these movies are about algorithms. And, and coded the creation, bias, I haven't seen. That's and the, the creation yeah. of yeah. algorithms. And what you, and I mean, the, you know, yes, we do know about surveillance capitalism, and we've all read surveillance capitalism, but to actually have concrete examples of how, say, uh, um, on Facebook, there were two ads that said, vote. And one ad went to Democrat. You know, they have the data, potential Democrat. One goes to Republican. The one that went to one of them has a lot of faces of all their friends in the ad at the bottom. That's how the ad was Oh, this designed. is encoded bias. Uh-huh, yeah. You know, so it's all about how, and, and that 300,000 more people went out to vote when they got vote with the faces and then without the faces. And um, mm. the, the thing was, if Mark Zuckerberg really doesn't like of how a particular candidate is voting in terms of reigning in Facebook, he can design these ads so that the person he the person he doesn't like looks bad and the opponent looks good. Well, it and makes he you wonder the how power to do that. Yeah, it makes you wonder what he'll do with Elizabeth Warren since he really yes. doesn't want her to win, and that yes. he's been very he's been open but about that. But both of these films are about. We think 
we use this for free. But it isn't free. Right. We, just like Richard Serra made that great piece years ago that says, television delivers people to advertisers. It's the exact Not same thing. we yeah. are delivered anything. And that's exactly what Facebook and Google and Amazon, we are delivered to advertisers. Mm -hmm. The difference between the two movies is that the uh, coded bias largely deals with we are delivered to government. Our da data is delivered to government. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so coded bias is also one of the movies that I think will make people say that the big thing about this festival is the presence of women of color on the screen and to a certain degree also directing and in control absolutely, of the movies. Absolutely. But on the screen, mm. fan. Fantastic. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And to that, I would just also, uh, th this movie will eventually get picked up. But last I heard, it wasn't, it had not been picked up. Uh, and I guess you guys have already talked about it, but I just want to plug yeah. a movie called The 40 Year Old Version, um, which is uh, by a playwright named Radha Blank. It's her first feature. She wrote, directed, and stars in it. It's very funny really really funny uh and it's a it's a basically a story of coming into your own and i you know made in made in new york most of it in the brooklyn a little bit in the bronx she, uh, she made it in black and white um and uh, i really really dig it and i hope it gets picked up wow. And there you go. Um, 40 year old version. Um, and before that, uh, social dilemma and coded bias. Any final thoughts, just pulling the camera back on, on the, the festival as a whole of uh, this might be kind of a turning point year of this kind of a transition couple of years, possibly for the festival, just in terms of like leadership, I guess. I don't right, know. Right. Because uh, John Cooper, who's a longtime uh, programmer, is this is his last year. And um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it, it is going to be kind of interesting. And I think the other, the big, you guys have probably already talked about it, is the presence of streaming uh, media yeah. here and the streaming companies buying things. And, you know, the feeling that kind of made, I, you know, you already had it a couple of years ago, feeling that these small movies that were not going to really be able to kind of sustain a theatrical release are just fodder for, for big companies like Netflix and Amazon. And, I know all the arguments for them, but I don't care. I am not for them. So that's why. The streamers. Yeah. No, yeah. I just think like, you know, your stuff is just going to be streaming next to some piece of shit, you know, television show and <laughs> nobody's ever going to, you know, you're just right. one. You're basically, you're serving the customer. The only th reason that Netflix buys these is not because they care about any of this stuff. You know, it's not, it's just that right. it's just, they want. They, it's for their subscribers. That's all this is about, you know, and okay, fine. But I don't think it serves the movies. Yeah. Well, just to be, um, I don't know. It's, optimistic? Are no, you not go optimistic, for that? but just like, not devil on the shoulder, but just like, well, because I often think like, well, like over the course of movies, there, there's always movies are always getting funded by these kind of weird ways in some in some ways. So like great movies are made through some absurd arrangement that if you look closely at it is like that's maybe not a good thing. Like Gulf Western, why is it a holding company for a studio or whatever, something like that, you know, like um, or or anything like that. But maybe in this case, it's just gotten starker that it's we're back to like capital and art in a way and art just being purely. A, a tool, as you were saying, for, for... I mean, I think there's also the uh, distinction between, like, producing and distributing the movies yeah. that is totally blurred. Sure. So, I mean, I've, I've spoken to some filmmakers here as well who were very grateful to Netflix for funding certain sure. projects that they were finding uh, difficult to get support sure. for. But I think what you're talking about is not just how they're made, but the no, fact no, that they're... No, I'm not talking about... I'm, I'm actually talking about... I'm, I'm actually more interested in exhibition, you know, distribution exhibition. Because, you know, get your money any way you can, short of maybe, you know, the theft. But I, you know... And that's it, sort of a deal with the devil that I guess some of the filmmakers have to make because they're getting the money from Netflix and in exchange, most of the times it's just going And their on. movies just fall off the face of the earth. I mean, I'm sorry. These, there's nothing... There's a term, you know, that they use in tech, sticky. There's nothing sticky about these movies. They just, they open, they close. I'm, I know that you really like the last two Soderbergh movies. I had completely forgotten they opened and I, that they were, they, you know, they, that they existed last year. They're both Netflix movies. They opened briefly. They closed very quickly. And 
I just was like, oh, and I just couldn't believe that there had been two Soderbergh movies and I had just forgotten about them. And that made me really depressed, you know? I mean, you know, maybe Netflix can improve. What Netflix did with the 13th is they let Ava go out with it and do, you know, uh, um, talks and that's all true and i think but that stuff like that, that makes them look really good it also makes you know it's good for her career but also i think they do that with movies where they're pushing for awards you know the movies that they're pushing f- to try to get awards they obviously i mean marriage story the scorsese less successfully they've pumped money into they want awards netflix also wants awards but again just to subs- for their subscribers you know so it's like i mean you know they want oscars so and they they did really well with her, you know, and that's, and that's a great documentary. I yeah. love that, you yeah. know? So they're not totally a waste of time. I've watched mm-hmm. lots of really mediocre science fiction movies on the platform. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. all the seasons of The Crown. Yes. <laughs> Do you have a trove of just like mid-level science fiction content? It's that's astonishing. <laughs> I'm just like, because I love science fiction movies and they're not enough. So I Me basically too, yeah. try to watch and you're just like, these are terrible. These are, they, it's, they're shockingly terrible. Like, I don't even understand how they could be so bad. But they're they have so amazing. amazing. I yeah. know, so many. It's wild. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, that's a story that's going to be ongoing, though. Yeah. That's yeah. really going to shape. And how that's going to affect festivals is really interesting, you know? Right. Yeah. Because, you know, everyone could just be home watching Lynx, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's I mean... I don't know. Well, the crowds are certainly packed here and and at other festivals. I mean, yeah, it could become a more hallowed experience. Yeah. Festival. Hopefully, the festivals won't be the only place. Being, to I'm going to gonna be optimistic. optimistic. <laughs> I'm all for optimism, <laughs> especially at late at night. Late at night. All right. Well, that's a good note to 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 uh, to end on, I suppose. Oh, so this is your last podcast of the Sundance uh, 2020, huh? Yeah. So well, if you want to set it. Say anything in flames. No, I, I just, uh, I as we as I said before we started taping, I feel like I've missed a lot of the really good movies, and Amy mm-hmm. was just making me weep as she was talking about Tesla. But <laughs> me too. Uh, you know, but that's that, the worst thing but, about. But that's this. a but that's a positive thing because it just makes yeah. us like look forward to things. That's yeah. really nice to be able to feel like oh, there's some discoveries to be made, which is nice. Yes, absolutely. Um, so without further ado, we bid you adieu, and thank you, Amy. Thank you, Manola, and thank you, Devika. It was great. Thank you. Until next year. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast with music by Greg Einge. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comet. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle. The Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Kino Lorber, presenting Beanpole from director Kantemir Balagov, winner of the Best Director Prize at Cannes Un Certain Regard and official selection of the 57th New York Film Festival. Beanpole is now playing in select cities. Critics are calling Angela Shanalek's I Was at Home But exquisitely cryptic and gorgeously immersive. I Was at Home But opens February 14th at Film at Lincoln Center with Shanalek in person for Q&As on Friday and Saturday.